Hey, what's up? It's your boy Anthony Cass Clark, and welcome to another edition of Thoughts Over Coffee Daily. Good people of the world, what is up? Hope that all is well, all is well on this side. I am still currently in Charlotte. Well, I was in South Carolina last time we spoke. Now I'm in North Carolina, Charlotte to be exact, giving you a hot, fresh podcast that you can listen to. Of course, I am trying my best not to fail you all. Today is featuring The Rock. The Rock is someone who needs no introduction. You know him from being a international wrestling superstar to now Hollywood's number one actor. He is the man to see for anything action-wise in movies. He's just an overall superstar, man. Um, Also, just a great guy from what we know about him. And uh, this podcast really gives you the insight and details of who he is and how he became who he is today. Um, you, you know, you see people after they achieve this high level of success, but it's rare that you get to see where they came from, the hard times that they had to go through. Um, and it's kind of you can't imagine them in, the, in that state because you see them in all the money and success that they have now. But, you know, The Rock is someone who comes from nothing. And um, he, he tells a really good story and, and kind of gives his, his experience here, man. So take a listen. As always, please get some gems from this. Take some notes. Share with somebody because this podcast is here to help you. It is here to enhance your lifestyle, enhance your knowledge, your wisdom, all of that good stuff. That's the reason why I do it. So. Don't let my purpose go in vain. <laughs> so, uh, of course, please share it with somebody. Share it with somebody you know. Share it with somebody who you think would be interested in this podcast. Share it on Instagram. Let me know that you're listening at CASS4QL. And um, I appreciate you guys. As always, I will talk to you tomorrow. Without further ado, here it is. Oprah Masterclass featuring Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock. I made my debut in the WWE November of 1996, and it was one of their very big pay-per-views of the year. It's called Survivor Series. I was what the industry calls a babyface, which is a good guy, compared to a heel, which is a bad guy. And I was so excited. Because of my lineage in wrestling, my grandfather wrestled for the WWE in the 70s. My dad wrestled for the WWE in the 80s. Of all places, my debut was in the Mecca, Madison Square Garden. The connection that I had with the audience that night was powerful, and I will never forget it. It was about a 25-minute match, and at about the final Three minutes of the match, 22,000 people in Madison Square Garden started chanting, Rocky, Rocky. (laughs) And it was electrifying. So now the honeymoon is over. Now it's time to really put in the work and wrestle every night in front of this crowd. And now my personality is coming out. This is the guy who was a Miami hurricane at the University of Miami. And I was a trash-talking dude on the field. But I was told that, hey, when you go out there, 
you can't smile enough. You have to smile. You have to be happy that you're here. Big smiling baby face, Rocky Maivia. And I thought, okay, but I'm actually gonna lose tonight. And they said, it doesn't matter. You still have to be happy and you still have to smile. My gut told me that wasn't right. Even though it's a fictionalized world, the fans are still buying in to the fiction. I went out and lost at night and would still be smiling and happy. And then very quickly, the fans knew that it wasn't real and it was inauthentic and it started to stink. And very, very quickly, the fans turned. And when you're a baby face, it's not a good thing when they're booing. I remember I had great angst every night before I went out because I was not able to be myself. My very first WrestleMania, the biggest show of the year, the Super Bowl of wrestling, that night 20,000 fans started chanting Rocky sucks. <laughs> it was a sobering moment and that was the beginning of the end of my initial run in the WWE. A few weeks later, I tore a tendon in my knee and uh, I was out for the rest of the summer. And I came to the realization before I went back that it wasn't me personally that they didn't like. It was that I wasn't being me. I wasn't being real, I wasn't being authentic. Who is this guy in wrestling who's smiling when he's getting beat? A few weeks later, I got a call from the WWE and I spoke to Vince McMahon. He said, when you come back, we could continue to shove you down people's throats or we could turn you heel because they want to boo you anyway. I said, I think it's a great idea. And I said, before we get off the phone, I have one request. I said, when I come back and we go live, I just need two minutes live. Me talking to the audience live, two minutes is all I'm asking. He said, okay, you got it. A couple of weeks later, I came back, we were on live TV. I grabbed the microphone, fans were already booing. They started chanting, Rocky sucks. I said, I may be a lot of things, but sucks isn't one of them. In that moment, The Rock was born. And about a month later, I was the hottest heel in the company and things were on fire. And the greatest lesson about that is be you, be yourself. Whether it's in entertainment, whether it's out in public, whether you're a celebrity or not, whatever, and the most powerful thing you can be is yourself. In high school in Nashville, Tennessee, I started to get in trouble. I was arrested for a variety of things from fighting to theft, check fraud. The arrest kept coming and I was getting in trouble constantly. My dad wasn't there because he was on the road. My family was, in essence, broken up, and it was the first time in my life that I felt no stability. And the buddy of mine, Bruno, he and I, we would go down to the supermarket, and I would steal food. I would steal steak and cookies or anything I could get my hands on. And that's how we would eat every day. And we would hang out going down to Lower Broad, the bad section of downtown Nashville. And we would hang in bars. They were these little dive bars. We had a pair of brass knuckles. And one night, we thought of this brilliant idea that we've come across every night so many of these drunks and bums. What if 
we took these brass knuckles and we waited out back in the alley for one of these bums to come stumbling out and, well, and we rolled him for his money with brass knuckles. My mom, her mouth is gonna be wide open right now because she's not gonna believe this story, but it's a true story. We went to this dive bar that we always hung out at and we were just waiting around and probably around 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and uh, this crackhead comes into a bar and he goes, hey, does anybody wanna buy a car? I said, sure, how much? He said, 80 bucks. I said, where's it at? He said, right outside. I looked at it and it was a big blue four-door Thunderbird. And I told the guy, hey, I got 40 bucks, 35 or 40 bucks, I'll give it to you now and then I'll come back in about an hour and I'll give you the rest. He was so high at that time, didn't matter. He said, yeah, sure. He's looking for his next fix. Me and my buddy got out of there, we got in the car and we started driving, thinking that we were kings of the road. And I uh, went to put gas in the car and realized that the crackhead that I bought the car from didn't give me the gas key. So there was no putting gas in the car. The car was probably stolen to begin with. But out of this whole craziness, I can sit here today and be so grateful that what I originally wanted to do did not happen. I didn't take a pair of brass knuckles and did whatever it was to a bum or a drunk for his money. And it's one of those stories that aside from never buy your car from a crackhead, aside from that, you sit today so humbled and in gratitude that you didn't go down a different path. And I'm very, very grateful because things could have been a lot different had I done that. I was born in a town outside of San Francisco, a smaller town called Hayward uh, in the East Bay. I grew up an only child, got a lot of love. It's that mama love, <laughs> mama's boy. Uh, love that I was so blessed to get and that tough love from my dad, which I was so blessed to get. My dad, who was a professional wrestler, would wrestle in a small promotion in town and we would stay there roughly for about a year, year and a half and we'd pack up and go to another state and another town. So I've lived all over the place. At that time, there weren't big money contracts. My dad wrestled a lot of times for cash every night and we were living paycheck to paycheck and with all the states that we used to live in, the one state that we kept going back to was Hawaii. I'm half black and half Samoan and uh, we had a lot of strong roots in Hawaii, and so I did a lot of my growing up in Hawaii. When I was 14 years old, I was living with my mom and dad in an efficiency for about 180 bucks a week, I think the rent was. And we came home and we were evicted. There was an eviction uh, on the door with a padlock. And it was me and my mom, and I'll never forget, I looked at her and she started crying. And at that point, we had hit an all-time low. I told myself that I was going to do everything I could possibly do to make sure that we were never evicted again. And in my mind, my interpretation of success or men who made it were all men who were physical guys. And whether it was the men in my life, the father figures in my life, my own dad, or whether it was my screen idols, Harrison Ford, for example, Clint Eastwood, these were guys who built their bodies. And at 14, I thought, well, that's what I will do. And so every day I went to the boys club after school and I worked out. I also got in trouble a lot, 
but I did work out. And in my mind, again, I was doing that so we would never be evicted again and I would never see my mom cry that way. And training for me or some sort of physical activity has always been an anchor for me. It becomes my daily achievement, it becomes my daily goal. And I like to get up before the sun and train, it becomes my anchor, but it came from that. It came from me at 14, never wanting to be evicted again. So there's a drive. When I was 15, my dad was wrestling in Nashville, Tennessee. I moved with him and when my mom finally arrived in Nashville, she had just driven all the way across country from California. And um, I knew that my parents were going through some, some really tough times in terms of their marriage. And it was, that was a tough day. I'll never forget it. It was probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. We were at a restaurant, the three of us, and they, they got into it. They got into a very big fight, not physical, but just really loud arguing. And um, my dad had a car at that time. And so they got into that car. My dad was driving, my mom was in the passenger seat. And I get in the car that my mom just drove, the family car and I start driving it. I already had my license at that time at 15. And we're driving down I-65. I-65 is a major interstate that runs through Tennessee. And I'm watching them drive in front of me and their car starts swerving and I can clearly see that they are arguing. My old man makes a hard right and he gets on the shoulder in the gravel road. My mom gets out of the car. And when she got out of the car, I'll never forget it, she had a glazed look over her eyes that I had never seen before. And she walks right into the middle of I-65 and continues to walk down into oncoming traffic. And my heart stopped. Horns were blowing and cars were swerving out of the way. 18-wheelers were swerving out of the way. And I got out of the car and I grabbed her and wrestled her over to the uh, side of the road and um, I don't remember what I said to her. I remember she didn't say a thing. And in that moment, one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned was how precious life is and how in an instant it can all go away. Changed me. The irony is my mom has no idea that it even happened. That's the irony. That's also the beauty of it. She does not remember anything Thank God, because maybe it's too traumatic to remember. When I was 16 years old, that was the last time that I was arrested. And at that time, we were at an all-time low, I think, with our family. And at that time, we were living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I am already a pretty big boy, six foot four, 200, and maybe 20, 25 pounds. I had a very bad mustache. I had a chip on my shoulder. Fresh into this high school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Freedom High School. I wanted to use the bathroom, but I didn't want to use the regular boys' bathroom because the boys' bathroom smelled like smoke and uh, all the other fun stuff that boys' bathrooms smell like. So I'd go into the teacher's lounge, and a teacher comes in. His name is Jody Swick, tough guy. He says, hey, you can't be in here. I kind of pause, look over my shoulder. Okay, I'll leave when I'm done. And I continue to wash my hands. I slowly dry my hands. And I walked by him and I kind of just looked at him. I walked by, he looked at me, didn't say a word, but he was fuming. I went home that night and I felt bad. I just felt bad. 
very next day, I found him, and I went to see him in his class, and I said, I just want to apologize for how I acted yesterday, and I'm sorry. And I stuck my hand out, and he looked at my hand, and looked at me, looked at my hand again. He shook my hand. I'll never forget that shake. He wouldn't let it go. He said, I want you to do something for me. Yes? Why don't you come out and play football for me? I said, okay. He said, all right. Have your word? Yeah, sure. You got my word. I didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, yeah, play some football. I like playing football. Sure. Cool. And I went out and I, and I played football for, for Jody Swick. And he was our head football coach. And he became a, a father figure to me and a mentor. I fell in love with the game of football. My grades got better. And I started getting recruited from every college across the country. College coaches would come in. You say, there he is, Dwayne Johnson, 6'4", 250. Plays both sides of the ball, very aggressive. My thought process started to change. That's when I started thinking about goals and what I wanted to accomplish. And I love that man. I'll never forget the impact that he had in my life. And the reminder and my takeaway from that amazing relationship that I had was the empathy that he had for a punk kid who treated him so rudely and disrespectfully. He looked past that BS and said, I believe in you and I want to turn you around. Oftentimes when I see kids and they have been labeled all oh, their punk kids, true, but there's good in them. And we got to see that potential. And I enjoy that today, seeing the potential in kids just like he did, especially kids who are kind of wayward and have been going through it. I know what it's like. So thank you, Jody. Thank you, buddy. I signed with the University of Miami to play football, and I was ready to tackle the world. This was it. This was my opportunity. I was the very first one in my family to go to college. We couldn't afford college, so I got a full, luckily, I got a full scholarship. I walked into that locker room with an intent to bring it. The very last day of full contact practice, I was making a tackle and felt something happen to my left shoulder. I couldn't move my arm because it was completely dislocated and it was hanging. Got surgery the very next morning and all that had been great turned dismal. I was sidelined, wasn't going to any of the meetings, no longer practicing, no longer with the team. And I fell into a depression. I stopped going to class and I spent my days by myself. I left school, I didn't take midterms, and uh, I went home. And at that time, the head coach was Dennis Erickson. And I get a call a few days before Christmas, and it's Dennis Erickson. He says, hey, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm great. He goes, okay, healing up? I said, yeah, healing up, great. Ready for the spring practice. He said, when Christmas is done, the next day, I want you to get in a car, and I want you to come back to school. The day after Christmas, I drive back to University of Miami, and I go see Dennis Erickson. He, along with my defensive line coach, Bob Carmelowicz, are so angry, and they say, you have not been going to class at all. And not only have you embarrassed us, more importantly, you've embarrassed yourself. I remember them asking me, do you want to be here? I said, I do. Well, you haven't proved it, and you are officially on academic probation, and you're officially 
on football probation. And if you want to be a part of this team, then every day, like a kid, after class, you're going to go to your professors and you're going to have them sign a note saying that you were in class. I did that for months. And it was sobering and it woke me up. And I realized what an opportunity that I had that I was wasting. I went on to become academic captain. I went on to get my football status back. <laughs> went on to have a pretty decent career at the University of Miami. Had it not been for two men, two mentors in my life who stopped, grabbed me with their two hands, grabbed me, one of them literally, <laughs> and said, we care. You ain't going down like this. We care. And they did care. And I didn't go down like that. And I'm here today. Like so many college football players, Dwayne dreamt of life in the NFL. But it was not to be. He was not drafted by the pros. Still determined to play the game he loved, Dwayne was selected by the Canadian Football League. But then he was cut from that team. Everything Dwayne had sacrificed for had been taken away. At age 23, he was forced to move back in with his parents. He was humbled and embarrassed and fell into the clutches of depression even. But it was here at his lowest point that he made a critical decision on what he truly wanted to do with his life. When I was 23, I was cut from the CFL after I was not drafted in the NFL. I had to move back in with my parents in a small apartment in Tampa. And again, dreams dashed. You work so hard and then somebody's saying that, well, you're just not good enough and you gotta go home. And at 23, you think life is over. I fell into a deep depression and I remember at that time, the only thing I wanted to do was clean the walls. I grabbed some cleaner and a rag and for days, I would clean. I cleaned everything. It was just the only thing I can control. I found that with depression, one of the most important things you could realize is that you're not alone. You're not the first to go through it. You're not gonna be the last to go through it. And oftentimes, it happens. You just, you feel like you're alone. And you feel like it's only you. And you're in your bubble. And, and I wish I had someone at that time who, who could just pull me aside and say, hey, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. So I wish I knew that, just gotta remember. Hold on to that fundamental quality of faith. Have faith that on the other side of your pain is something good. After about a month and a half of staying in that little apartment and cleaning. I got a phone call from the head coach of the team who cut me, the head coach of the Calgary Stampeders. He called me and he said, hey, I know we cut you, but I'd like you to come back. I said, okay, I appreciate that coach. Thank you very much, uh, I'll think about it. And he said, okay, great. I hung up the phone and my dad said, you gonna do it, right? I said, no, I don't think so. I think I'm done with that. And he goes, what? I said, my gut tells me I'm done. He said, what are you going to do? I took a deep breath. I said, I'd like to get into the business. He said, what business? I said, the wrestling business. He said, you are throwing it 
all away. It is the worst mistake you will ever make. He said, you're ruining your career. I said, maybe I'll be no good, but I feel like in my heart, I have to do this. And I either need you to train me or need you to not train me. My dad rose to the occasion, said, I'll train you. And it wound up being one of the greatest chapters in my life. There's a very unique bond between a dad and his son. And it could be challenging and it could be tough. It could also be loving. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized my dad struggled. He struggled so much. Growing up, his dad died during the holidays. And a short while later, I believe the following holiday, the man who my grandmother was seeing got drunk that night and urinated on the turkey. When that happened, my dad at 13 grabbed a shovel and they went outside and my dad drew a line in the dirt and said, if you cross that line, I'm gonna kill you. And he crossed that line and my dad hit him in the head with a shovel and knocked him out cold. Cops came and the cops told my grandmother, when he wakes up, lucky that he's not dead, you're gonna have to make a decision. One of them is gonna have to go because one of them is going to kill the other one. My grandmother looked at my dad at that time and said, uh, Wade, you gotta go. So at 13, he was kicked out and never had a home. So that is my dad's capacity to love. He has no reference of love, so that was his love. These days, my relationship with my dad is a greater relationship because I understand the challenges that he's had growing up and the grudges that I used to hold, I no longer hold against him because he was loving with the capacity that he had. And at that time, it wasn't a lot. The grudges or the judgments that we had to either our family members or friends, or, it starts to lessen up a bit and it starts to get a little easier because you start to realize that they did the best that they can. Their ability to love wasn't right, wasn't wrong. It was just their ability to love. And today I'm able to have wonderful relationships in my life that are pretty much judgment free and grudge free. It can happen, it can happen. When I was cut from the CFL in 1995, I had seven bucks in my pocket, literally seven bucks. And I found that this story often helps a lot of people because we all go through our seven buck moment in our life. And at that time, I would scratch and claw. And my opportunities at that time were maybe little holes in the wall. And I would see this little hole in the wall opportunity and I would scratch at it, I would claw it, I would kick it down, I would bite, I would, get, I would do everything I could possibly do to get through that hole and to create a bigger opportunity for myself. And I think when you have that in your DNA and in your constitution and your makeup, you approach every day and every opportunity like it's that big and I'm gonna scratch at it, I'm gonna claw at it. And we knock it out of the park and when I made the transition into Hollywood, it was a defining time because I, I surrounded myself with a great group of individuals that have now continued to grow, 
We have an incredible production company of Seven Bucks Productions that continues to grow and make movies and television content. But it is all based off of the single intention and notion of it's an opportunity and we will take advantage of it, always. I got a lot of things happening in my life and I've been so lucky and fortunate to have been blessed with a lot of things. The relationship part to me is my most prized thing. The people in my life, I've learned the power that we have to make other people happy and content in a relationship. And I have the love of my life, Lauren, who I've had for eight years now. I wake up every day so grateful and so thankful that you have someone like that, someone who you could walk through this world with. This is the kid who grew up an only child, who shouldered all the family's problems. It's that kid who had a hard time with relationships to this man today. So yeah, the smile is real <laughs> when I think about that. And I realized being a father is the greatest job I have ever had, the greatest job I will ever have. I always wanted to be a great dad. I always wanted to give Simone things that I felt I never got when I held her when she was born. I held her in these two hands and I said to her, I will always, always take care of you for the rest of your life. You are safe. And I literally held her in these two hands. And throughout the years, throughout the ups and downs, I've realized that the most important thing that I could do with my daughter is lead our life with love. Not success, not fame, not anything else, but I'm always here for you. I love you. There was a time where I said, tell me, what is the thing that you love most about our relationship? And she's like, oh, come on. And I'm like, no, no, no. What, what's the one thing that you love most about our relationship? And she said, well, that I trust you. And for a 13-year-old girl to say that to her dad, considering where I was at 13, the instability I had, and she said, um, well, that I trust you and that we have a very special bond. And that moved me. And so, you know, at 13, she's saying that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I couldn't ask for anything else. I love that girl. Yeah. Trust. It is the bond that he has with his daughter. And it's also the guiding principle of his career. He knows to trust his unique voice and his own perspective, no matter where it takes him. These days on the big screen, Dwayne does it all. He'll rescue you from an earthquake in San Andreas, get your heart racing in the Fast and Furious franchise, and make you laugh by putting on wings in a tutu. A showman to the core who delights in the delight of others while still staying true to who he is. Dwayne Johnson, you're a master. When I was at the, the height of my career in the WWE, I felt that for the very first time that I was close to accomplishing everything that I wanted to accomplish in wrestling. And I quietly walked away. Kind of shook me a little bit because wrestling was all I knew at that time. And I had dabbled in acting, but yet I also felt that 
I wanted to do more and I wanted to achieve more and I wanted to grow. I wanted to grow as a person. I wanted to grow as an entertainer and that I wanted to reach as many people as possible, not for the box office value of it, but before the connection. And I had come from a world where I was connecting with an audience every night and I wanted that connection. And I wanted to not only be good as an actor, but if I made the transition into acting, I wanted to be great. I knew going in, the cards are stacked against me. There's a shelf life to a career if I just wanted to get by on popularity. I didn't want to be in that position. I wanted longevity. If that's the goal, then I have to do everything I could possibly do to know the business of Hollywood from top to bottom, from acting to marketing to an executive level to a producing level to a directing level and just know it as a whole, that would inherently make me a greater asset. And I appreciate all the people in the beginning of my career as I was coming up who took the time who took the effort, who took me in, because I had to educate myself, man, I had to be a student of the game. Know your business. Know your business and become a student of the game and surround yourself with brilliant people and go to work.